antelope. Did you hear it? Probably an antelope. It's run away. It was just there, by that tree. A safari through the dense rainforests of Gabon in West Africa. Our guide, Ghislaine Boissa, takes us deeper into the forest, pointing out a gorilla's nest high in the canopy, showing the medicinal properties of various plants and trees, and following recent tracks of an antelope. Finally, coming to a clearing, there's a majestic bull elephant grazing among a herd of buffalo. If we come across with an animal, just make sure that you don't run away because the animal is faster than you are. And if they charge, move back and go behind the tree. We're trekking through the Congo Basin, the second largest forest in the world, and an ecosystem that is essential for the air we breathe and the water we drink. And while the region is home to a startling array of biodiversity, it's hardly all that Africa has to offer. To the north is the Sahara Desert, the world's largest hot desert. There's the Great Plains of East Africa teeming with majestic wildlife, the largest sand dunes in the world along the southwestern coast, the world's longest river, and a snow-capped mountain just a couple of degrees south of the equator. Africa has 30% of the world's biodiversity, with much of it unique to the continent. It also has 1.3 billion people. And like people everywhere, they want social and economic well-being and hope to pass on a good life to their children. Africa's biodiversity plays a role in reaching those goals. Hello, I'm Carol Pinot, host of Africa Forward. This season is on African-led conservation and is brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation, AWF, and produced by FP Studios. In this episode, we'll delve into Africa's biodiversity, the threats it's facing, the ways it's being preserved and even restored, and above all, we'll focus on the biodiversity economy, looking at how biodiversity should be valued. But we'll also explore ways in which Africans can sustainably use their natural resources to forge a new path forward, where conservation and social and economic development work in harmony. And every so often, we'll pop back into the forest for a mini safari with Ghislaine Buessa, who was able to share indigenous knowledge from the forest and the complexities of these ecosystems. The Wuzuga trees is one of the examples of the interaction between animals and plants and trees. When the, the fruit goes through the elephant's digestive system, it gives a good condition for the seeds to grow. And when the elephant leaf is dung, the tree will start regenerating and the forest will get bigger and bigger. Biodiversity refers to the different types of life in an ecosystem, including all the flora and fauna. Western-led conservation aimed to preserve Africa's biodiversity by walling it off. Kadu Sibunya, CEO of AWF, says that mindset created a situation where Africans had limited options to engage with their own natural resources. Biodiversity for a very long time it has been so much connected to tourism, as if biodiversity is only for tourism. So tourism is the only way you can gain from biodiversity. African-led conservation puts people at the center, and it connects the dots between conservation, climate change, and economic development. Vanessa Ushi, director of the African Natural Resource Management and Investment Center at the African Development Bank, 
has always loved being out in nature, but now she sees it through a different lens. Now, what I see is an opportunity. It's really about changing the way we relate with nature and using the scarce resources that we have more responsibly, even looking at new technologies to see how this could be done more efficiently. It is an opportunity for us to build more resilient economies, create more jobs, and we need to have a different relationship with the natural landscape. Creating a different relationship with nature, that's the key. Christian Mbina is the director of national parks in Gabon. The way he talks about the forest is almost poetic. For me, a forest is, is, is a place of dreams, it's a place of love, it's a, it's a place of travel, it's a place of passion, it's a place of inspiration, for instance, it's a place of all beauty. But ask Mbina about sustainable use of the forest, and he is clear. It's the principle, quite simply, of forest management that we have. There is no question for us of saying we want to stop exploiting the forest. For us, we exploit the forest, but with sustainable management method that allow the forest to regenerate. In the central region of Ghana, just a few hours from Accra, lies Portal Forest Estates, a sustainably managed forest. The company has several programs that make use of their forests including distilling essential oils from plants grown near the company's property. CEO Wellington Baden has created a company that sustainably uses Africa's biodiversity and creates livelihoods for the communities around him. The company's website notes, the forest, when sustainably managed, becomes in effect a green supermarket with new products consistently springing up from nature's bounty. Your flavors and fragrance industry you need essential oils, in your medicinal industry, in your fashion industry. But Africa has a niche for the oils which are around herbs and spices and aromatic plants that require six hours of sunlight a day. And at the same time, they need to be grown in a forest-like environment. So you can package the sunlight in a plant, you can put the forest in a bottle, and you can sell it. For AWF Sabunya, this is the model he wants for Africa. Moving away from seeing biodiversity is only for tourists and instead seeing it connected to business. And he reminds us that the forest is not just a supermarket, it's also a pharmacy. Pharmaceutical companies are, are looking at the flora, and that's big, 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 big business. The capacity is still very low on the continent, and we need to, to do more work there. But biodiversity has to be part of business. Vanessa Ushi says from her vantage point at the Natural Resource Management Center, she sees both an opportunity and a gap. It's just a knowledge gap. So a need to really understand what we have in terms of these plants, their value, the products that they could generate for food or medicine or, or other uses, and how we could now develop some products which are sold on international markets and which bring new revenues to African countries. Just how much potential for big pharma could there be? Lots. For a small taste, let's go back to the forest with Ghislaine Boissa as he shows us the forest as a medicine chest. Um, So if you are uh, walking in the forest and you don't have a first aid kit, you get wounded, a machete or a good through a, a branch, and you get wounded. So you just collect the bark of the new tree, 
like this, scratch it a little bit like this and collect the sap like this and put it on the wound. After two, three days, it starts healing. It's natural antiseptic. The relationship between agriculture and biodiversity is complex. By definition, agriculture is part of biodiversity, and humans and all animals need food to live. But agriculture is also a major source of greenhouse gases, and it often leads to large deforestation. Food security is an important part of the negotiation for space between people and nature. Ushi says her center was set up so they could look at new ways to address those issues. In this new era of these twin issues of climate change, biodiversity loss, and that Africa is ground zero for, for these crises, it's about using, maybe it's about using the resources better. So, you know, some forest areas can be used for agricultural practices without damaging the ecosystem base. And the risks of damaging the ecosystems are real because they've already lost so much. Africa is losing its biodiversity or, or natural capital very rapidly. If you look at the data and the evidence between 1965 and 2018, over 65% of, of Africa's natural capital stock was depleted. And this involves our critical ecosystems, uh, whether it's from wetlands to marine protected areas. All of these are really under pressure. Ushi notes several factors, population growth, urban expansion, industrialization, land use, and climate change. So many Africans depend on the natural resource base for their livelihoods. And so anything that upsets that balance between our development and nature certainly has far-reaching effects. And this is why it's a priority for us to ensure that it's protected, not just for our own survival, but for the future and for posterity. But Africa also has one of the best natural assets for fighting climate change, mangroves. Those distinct, swamp-loving trees with a tangle of roots above ground. Mangrove trees grow in tropical and subtropical coastal regions. They protect arable land, preserve aquatic habitats, and scientists say they are one of the most efficient plants on Earth when it comes to absorbing carbon. Gabon National Park's Christian Mbina explains. It's a carbon fixer. The world mangroves fix about 25% of the carbon in the world. And in addition, mangroves help protect us against erosion and major storms. So here's an ecosystem which gives us advantages for conservation and advantages which are real and which are for the benefit of the populations. Despite significant loss, the continent still has about 21% of the world's mangrove forests. And some countries are fighting back. Senegal recently planted 79 million mangrove trees, which over 20 years are expected to absorb about half a million tons of carbon. Throughout Africa, deforestation has been a serious issue. Logging by major foreign companies has been one of the extractive industries that earned Africans little but contributed greatly towards environmental destruction. But there's also illegal logging. Wellington Baden of Portal Forest Estates says there's often a connection. Often the causes of the degradation comes from companies from outside, and then they destroy the livelihoods of the communities. Then the communities participate in the very destructive activities 
in order to make ends meet. It becomes a case of survival. And then you have your climate changing. But with climate change, the effects may begin as local, but they soon become global. You can't sit in your part and think, okay, I'm fine. And this is happening all the way there. So it's got nothing to do with me. It does. We share one planet. It's going to work its way to you. Like Senegal, with their mangrove forest restoration initiatives, several African governments are implementing programs to plant trees for reforestation and to restore the green cover in their country. In 2019, Ethiopia set a world record, 350 million seedlings planted in just one day. While other countries may not have beaten Ethiopia's record yet, African leaders do like to brag about their tree planting numbers, showing a seriousness when it comes to conservation. In looking at food security in nature, it's interesting to note that there are about 250 to 300,000 edible plants in the world. But according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, humans eat only about 4% of that. And worldwide, just three plants make up about two-thirds of our plant-based calories, corn, wheat, and rice. What if we started looking beyond just eating a mere 4% of edible plants? Wouldn't that have a huge impact on food security, the environment, and even economic development in the regions cultivating those products? With Africa's rich biodiversity, there is a huge array of plants that could sustainably be cultivated for food or even medicine. Some entrepreneurs are already looking at the opportunities. Stella Kareba owns Kijani Foods. Kijani means fresh. Located in the suburbs of Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, the shop's bestseller is an unusual smoothie. Welcome to Kijani Whole Foods. How may I help you today? Hi, I've heard that you have a really good boabab smoothie. Oh, it's really nice. It boabab gives the smoothie a tangy taste to it. And we also add some peanut butter. Give me just a minute for me to make it for you. Often called the tree of life, the baobab looks like a huge upside-down tree, with its leafless branches looking like roots reaching skyward. The baobab tree grows throughout Africa, no matter how hot or dry the climate. One tree can store up to 1,200 gallons of water. This is a tree that can withstand a lot of impact from climate change. The fruit has six times more vitamin C than an orange, and 50% more calcium than spinach. It's easy to harvest, and it's a nutrient powerhouse. Could it become the next popular superfood? Kareba says while her baobab smoothie is a favorite, her shop sells a huge array of plant products that are grown in Kenya. Several are well-known, but others, not so much. For plant-based uh, diets, the hardest micronutrient to, that people really struggle to get in is protein. But from Africa, and specifically from Kenya, we have pumpkin seeds, chia seeds. There's a plant called amaranth. In Kenya, we call it terere. Terere is also very high in protein. We have cassava, which grows wildly. Also tamarind. Tamarind is also a wild fruit. It grows in, especially in the coastal areas. All these baobab, hibiscus, tamarind, they are very high in vitamin C. We call them superfoods. And how's that tangy, citrusy baobab smoothie? I liked it. In fact, I loved it. We've talked a lot about opportunities to use biodiversity that go beyond the traditional tourism model. But let's not forget the impact that tourism can have on communities and economies. 
High up in the dense forests of the volcanic mountains spanning Rwanda, Uganda, and Democratic Republic of Congo lies one of Africa's most exciting wildlife adventures, trekking to see the mountain gorillas. Michelle McElwin Meller went to see the great apes this past summer. She organized a study abroad for George Mason University, so she's a seasoned traveler, but she says this was really special. Oh, it was an extraordinary experience. You could hear them before you came to them. It was wonderful. They had babies. There were two silverback gorillas, and they're big and friendly, and it was just a, a unique experience, um, for sure, once in a lifetime. Rwanda has become a leader in Africa for ecotourism, conservation, and addressing climate change. The nation aspires to be a middle-income country by 2035. Their Minister of Environment, Dr. Jean-Doc Mujawamariawa, explains that conservation and climate change is central to their plans. For more than 20 years now, Rwanda has taken a proactive approach and put the environment and climate change at the heart of everything we do. The idea was to bring all Rwandans into the country's development journey, integrating green growth and climate resilience strategies. The peace and tranquility of the gorilla's habitat in the Virunga National Park is a far cry from the bustle of the capital of Kigali. But the starkest contrast is comparing it to where Rwanda was less than 30 years ago. In 1994, Rwanda suffered one of the worst genocides in history. In just 100 days of unimaginable violence against the ethnic Tutsis, it's estimated that one million people lost their lives, and as many as 250,000 women were raped. The people were in absolute shock. Everything was decimated. Almost no government institutions were left standing, and even if they were, there would have been no trust. As far as conservation, national parks were utterly destroyed. First of all, the Akajira Park was a battlefield during the genocide. We were having mines, bombs that were detonating because when people came running from the Kiras, some of them went to occupy the Akajira National Park. You can understand they have to kill animals before occupying the park. All the lions, leopards, and all but two elephants were killed. It was expected that Akagera Park would disappear. So how did Rwanda go in just one generation from complete destruction to a vibrant, high-end tourism destination, a place where one night to go hang out with gorillas can cost a few thousand dollars? Gradually, slowly by slowly, because we have first to heal the wounds. It wasn't an easy journey to tell people to plant trees when the whole family was decimated, to tell people that we are going to invest in gorilla protection. We had to show them how protecting the biodiversity will bring revenues to be able to protect them. Imagine telling a deeply traumatized population with little sense of security and severe shortages in housing, food, and even the most basic necessities, that to have a brighter future, they should look to conservation, rehabilitate national parks, set aside more land for animals, protect the gorillas, plant trees everywhere, and even more shocking, 
plant those trees, often with survivors and perpetrators, side by side. Justice was the first step to rebuilding trust. So we had first to unite Rwandans through justice after genocide with the ultimate aim of all Rwandans once again living side by side in peace. The government embarked on an ambitious justice and reconciliation process. In addition to the regular court system, the Rwandan government reestablished the traditional community court system called Gakacha. They tried over one million cases in a country with a population at the time of just over six million. The community started gaining hope, hope of living, hope of life. People were looking forward to a brighter future. But it was step by step. And part of that future was tied to nature. Investing in biodiversity was a matter of growing our economy. And economic growth was the only way we could come out of trauma. Conservation of natural resources was among the resources to ensure a better well-being. And of course, the future we want for our people to live in harmony with nature, to live in harmony between one another. One of the key initiatives to rebuild the nation and help people live in harmony has been Umaganda, which means coming together in common purpose to achieve an outcome. On the last Saturday of each month in Rwanda, communities come together to do a variety of public works, which often include activities that promote infrastructure development and environmental protection. They plant trees, clean stormwater drainage, and do progressive terracing. In a country often referred to as the land of a thousand hills, terracing is a backbreaking undertaking, but essential to slow the downhill flow of rainwater. The benefit to the economy and conservation is tremendous, providing millions of dollars in savings to the national economy. Last summer, I participated in Umaganda, and it was extraordinary. We were constructing a small agricultural feeder road that would help bring produce to markets. Everyone was out. Men, women, young children, even the mayor and vice mayor. And like everyone else, those elected officials grabbed a hoe to help smooth the road. But the value of Umaganda is not just monetary. After this work finishes, community members get together to discuss important matters, which we call uh, council of the community. So there is that coercion between human being and environment, between human needs and nature. Rwanda's conservation efforts, and in fact their entire development agenda, is dependent on community engagement. For the system to work, Umaganda and similar meetings are essential. Recently, Rwanda passed new laws on biodiversity. Communities were consulted before the laws went to Parliament. After they were passed, they were consulted again to educate them on the law and penalties, but also the reasons behind the laws. What is the relationship between human being and biodiversity? why we should protect biodiversity, why we should really 
live in harmony with nature because with the involvement of the community, that is how you can really talk about greening a country. An important part of greening the country is planting trees. This year's goal, 43 million trees. We have reached 30.4% of our land covered by forests. So uh, to, to be able to fight climate change, we have to be bored on afforestation. Planting trees is where conservation can also be part of peace building. We planted trees as a memoir. We were here for community work. We were here for peace education. We were here for unity and reconciliation. Now there are grown forests which are ready to be harvested. So you can understand why people in Rwanda embrace the biodiversity conservation, environment protection, because we are looking at it as economic development and poverty reduction strategy. Back to Akagera Park, the national park that was decimated during the genocide. It's now been restored and is home to all the big five, lions, leopards, elephants, rhino, and buffalo, and more than 250 types of birds. And the gorillas? Rwanda has helped to restore populations. Gorilla tourism has skyrocketed. In 2000, there were 1,200 visitors. By 2019, the number soared to more than 20,000. Revenue from gorilla tourism benefits development, especially in local communities where it has gone towards building hospitals, schools, and improving access to drinking water. But more gorillas and tourists means more negotiation for space. Rwanda is expanding the Volcanoes National Park. The government is building green housing and farmland for the people who will have to move for the park's expansion. And like all projects in Rwanda, it started with community consultations. Sustainability and conservation are a part of our national identity. Because Rwanda has a tragic recent history, but we want to look for the future. We are really optimistic that Rwandans will continue to devise strategy to be innovative on how we can live in harmony with nature. Throughout Rwanda, one sees the attachment people feel for their most prized wildlife and the sense that each of them has a stake in their future. There are statues and murals depicting gorillas, hotels and businesses named after them. Each year, there's a national ceremony to give names to the baby gorillas born in the region Rwanda is monitoring. It's one of their most loved yearly celebrations. The baby gorilla I'm going to name today is a baby girl, and the name that I've chosen to give her is Imbaduko. And this name means vivacity. The name was chosen to celebrate the unwavering commitment of the Rwandan people to the protection of the mountain gorillas. Next to Rwanda is the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, which sits in the middle of one of the world's most valuable resources. No, it's not diamonds, though they've got plenty of those. And it's not Colton, the mineral that powers batteries for our phones, computers, and electric cars, though they've got 80% of the world's supply of that. It's an asset that matters most to every one of us on this planet. It's the forest. More specifically, 
the Congo Basin, of which 60% is in the DRC. The Congo Basin is a vast stretch of dense tropical rainforest that follows the Congo River as it makes its arc from the Atlantic Ocean to Central Africa. Spanning six countries, the Congo Basin is bigger than the landmass of the entire country of India. Picture the United States east of the Mississippi River, and that's still not as big as the Congo Basin. It's considered the second lung of the world, with the Amazon being the first. They're called the Earth's lungs because they are enormous carbon sinks, and with climate change, they are essential. DRC's Minister of Environment, Eve Bezeba, sums up why her country may be so important to us all. The minister had asked to do this interview in French as she felt that she could express herself better. But her message is so important that she's kindly agreed to do the interview in English so that we can hear from her directly instead of through a translator. DRC is a solution to climate change. So we are not only the victim of pollution, but we can also contribute to give the solution, to give the response to, for this challenge of climate crisis. After being asked about the Congo Basin being the second lung, Minister Bezeba adds a correction, noting the recent findings of international climate scientists. If we are now the first lung of humanity. According to a recent study published in the journal Nature, the Amazon rainforest for the past couple of years has been emitting more carbon than it absorbs. Deforestation and fires deliberately set to clear land for agriculture certainly contribute to the increase in emissions. But the Amazon's trees are dying at an increasing rate, making them less able to absorb carbon. These forests have been in existence for more than a million years. It's hard to imagine them not being there. But don't forget that historically, when countries start industrializing, their forests are often cut down. DRC, like the rest of Africa needs to industrialize, but climate change has made the stakes much higher. Minister Bezeba says her government is well aware of their responsibility in preserving this essential global resource. What we have as potential to fight against the challenge of climate, we are those who should protect this uh, potential for humanity. So we should change our behavior, never destroy the forest. But she explains it's not quite so simple. But in the same time, the population asking me, we burn the forest for agriculture is not to destroy. It is the way for us to feed ourselves. We need just to have an alternative. We'll stop to put fire to the forest will stop the, to cut the tree because of agriculture if we, you give us an alternative. Recently, DRC announced it would sell a limited number of licenses for oil and gas drilling in the Congo Basin. Environmentalists were horrified. You can't say that no Congolese people, you should not exploit your oil, you should not uh, maybe uh, go to the development because you're going to disrupt the environment. We say, okay, we are ready to protect those environments, but we need also bread. So let us put together the link between oxygen and bread. To survive, we need it. We need oxygen, we need bread as well. 
If you just look at natural resources, DRC is one of the richest countries in the world. It has one of the largest reserves of minerals, diamonds, gold, cobalt, copper, pretty much anything you can think of. The value is estimated to be worth $24 trillion, almost twice the GDP of the European Union. That's almost one quarter of global GDP. DRC is the second largest country in Africa and about the same size as Western Europe. It has significant arable land, 50% of Africa's freshwater reserves, and hydropower potential that at times has made investors swoon, saying it could light up Africa from Cairo to Cape Town and still have enough to export to Europe. And their forests? Aside from timber, there's so much left to discover, from plant-based medicines to new foods. We are fifth in the world in terms of biodiversity, flora and fauna. The scientists just discovered 47 species of coffee, not only Arabica and Robusta. We have 47 other. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Unfortunately, DRC's natural resource richness has not translated into a better life for the people. About two-thirds of the country live below the poverty line. In 2003, a peace agreement ended the Congo War that had engulfed so much of Africa 20 years ago. And yet in DRC, insecurity remains, especially in the eastern region. The country had its first peaceful transition of power in 2019. Primary education is now free. The World Bank notes there is increased transparency, and the government has instituted public sector reforms. For a resource-rich country where investment is primarily concentrated in extracting raw goods, the path forward is clear. Add value to natural resources. For example, take their minerals. It can be pulled from the ground and exported as primary goods, but that will only fetch a fraction of the price. Or it can be processed, smelt to produce pure minerals. Copper can be made into wires, gold into bars or jewelry. Diamonds can be cut and polished. Selling natural resources as primary goods earns pennies on the dollar compared to the dramatic increases in revenue for every step up in the value chain. And with production, there's capacity building and job creation. For our mineral resources, we need those who can come invest to exploit and to transform it locally. And it's the same for timber from their forests. We should transform those wood locally because it's the the best way for us to protect the forest. Transforming wood to protect the forest? Yes, absolutely. Cut down a tree and that log will earn a fraction of what can be earned from producing lumber or even furniture. And with more earnings from each tree, sustainably using the forest becomes more attractive. In nearby Gabon, the government outlawed the exportation of logs, which created a bustling industry and countless jobs in manufacturing lumber, wood chips and pulp, and even high-end furniture. Minister Bezeba says DRC is looking to do the same. And Colton, that mineral that is essential for all our electronics and electric cars. It can be processed into batteries. Investors may point to plenty of risks, but DRC owns 80% of the world's stock of Colton. What would happen if they passed a law forbidding export of Colton without adding value? Even we are the owner, we are the source. We want not all our natural resources to be transformed locally. Minister Vezeba says they also need capacity development so that they have the necessary skills to do more production. 
And on that poignant choice between oxygen and bread, between breathing and eating, the minister has a final plea. If we are now the first lung of humanity, how can you protect your lung? You should protect Congolese people. We should protect Congolese people to give them opportunity, to give them the capacity to protect the forest, to protect the environment for humanity. It's clear that the world benefits from the Congo Basin and other resources. Africans are the stewards. But Minister Bezeba brings up important points. Who pays? Who gets to develop? Who gets to benefit from development? And don't we all have a responsibility to protect these resources? These are the sticking points for climate negotiators, and there are no easy answers. As we see at all the climate negotiations, talk is cheap. How are we going to pay for it? Next in this series, we'll do a deep dive on innovative approaches to finance and conservation. We've managed our forests sustainably. We've increased our biodiversity rather than decreasing it. And, and if, if there is a little bit of equity in this world, we should be able to put these Gabon carbon credits on the market for a sensible price. But before we go, some last words from Christian Mbina, the Gabon National Park's director, who speaks so poetically about the forest. It is difficult for me to choose which is the most beautiful forest. I specialized in major forest basin of the world. I am a specialist in Amazonian forest, the Congo Basin, Mekong Forest. That's my mother, my love. I like the undergrowth of the forest with its freshness, with the pretty scent, with the little butterfly under the undergrowth, with the pretty flowers, with the wild orchids. I am a forest lover. I am a forest man. Thanks so much for listening to Africa Forward. I'm Carol Pinot, the host and executive producer of the program. Our producers include Rosie Julin, Yore Wu, and Rob Sachs. Assistant producers, Alessandra Salase and Lily Anderson. And if you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave us a review. It helps spread the word about what we're doing. Africa Forward Second Season is brought to you by the African Wildlife Foundation and produced by FP Studios. All opinions and views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of the African Wildlife Foundation or FP Studios. For more information on African Wildlife Foundation, check out awf.org. And for more on FP Studios, you can go to foreignpolicy.com and click on podcasts.